Due to copyright reasons, the following introduction will feature new interpretations of classic songs. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, and he'll never ever be any good. All the leaves are brown and the sky is gray and the sky. Hi, I'm Casey Kasem and I'm Ray Hebel. Now, who doesn't love these classic earworms? Songs that have stood the test of time. Going to San Francisco. You've heard them hundreds of times. And just like me, they never get old. Gypsies, trams, and things we hear from the people of the town. Strangers in the night, exchanging glances. And cheers to you, Mr. Robertson. And Jesus loves you. And how about these ditties that use the wall of sound recording technique developed by Phil Spector? It's pre-2003. Be my, be my, be my little baby, my one and only darling. I'm telling ya, you have lost that love and feeling. River deep, mountain high, And that wall of sound caused the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson to go on to create this. Good, good, good. Thanks, Casey. I'll take it from here. But did you know that the musicians on the records are all part of a collective? That's right. When Los Angeles was the go-to place to record music in the 60s, there were a select group of session musicians who would contribute to some of the most beloved songs of the last century. Hey there, Mr. Tambourine Man, play that tambourine. Instrumentalists who lived anonymously through our stereo for decades. Artists that helped shape the sound of popular music. Musicians that were told that they would wreck the music industry with that new rock and roll sound. We cover the wrecking crew this week on This Was a Thing. Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Daniel. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the retro podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. This week we're talking about the group of studio session musicians informally known as The Wrecking Crew. Now, this was a thing because back in the 1960s, uh, Los Angeles was, was becoming the go-to place to record music. Now, all the stars were heading out west, leaving New York City in the dust, and those stars needed to have top-tier talent backing them on their records, and if they wanted that top-tier talent, they called the Wrecking Crew, informally known as. What were they formally known as? Well, I mean, they, they apparently didn't really have, like, they were known as, like, the Click. But like they they didn't really have the the name the Wrecking Crew didn't apparently didn't really stick until one of them released an autobiography in ninety one, and then there was oh. a bunch of a bunch of disputes like no it was never called the Wrecking Crew back then. But I'll get into the all that all that semantics. So there's there was a lot of people in the Wrecking Crew over time like it was like about a sixty two to seventy two was at the peak. So I'm gonna just pick I'm gonna talk a little bit about what they did. I'm gonna pick out some of the people that were in them. But for me to talk about Everyone would just be too long, and what Ray's trying to do is learn how to edit himself. So uh, I'm going to be talking about some of the things they did, some of the records they cut, and then some of the uh, people that were in it. And uh, with the help of a documentary called The Wrecking Crew, uh, done by one of the sons of uh, one of the guitarists, which is really cool. And he'd been working on it since the mid-90s, and it finally got released in 2015. To clarify, is that documentary's official name, The Wrecking Crew, or is that just what people lovingly refer to it as? Touche. No, yes, yes, yes. Uh, People lovingly refer to it as The Click, but the documentary is called The Wrecking Crew, for sure. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Documentary actually is called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. (laughs) <laughs> but we call it the wrecking crew. So session musicians are musicians who musicians. I don't know why I can't say the word musician. That's okay, Ray. Try it again. Session, you got this. Session. Keep this in. Session musicians are musicians who mainly play their instrument in studio during the recording process. Mostly they go unknown and it's just kind of it. You know, they come in, get the sheet music, play and 
boom, boom, boom. Sometimes uh, they would knock out a whole album in a day back in the day. So like no affiliation to the singer, no affiliation. No, no exactly. No, it was just like they. it's not their uh, singer's touring band or anything. Um, and I'll get into some other things they did, too. Um, now, there were cities considered, quote unquote, music cities, uh, like places artists would go to record whatever album they were cooking up next. There was New York, L.A., Detroit, Memphis. Uh, those were all heavy hitters. Each of those cities had their own group of musicians that would play instruments in those recordings. They would just know how to play any type of music at the drop of a hat. You know, it's just they they're like prodigies, I guess you could say. Memphis had a few of those crews. There was the Memphis Boys, Booker T and the MGs, who actually became had their own success in the Memphis Horns. Uh, Nashville had the Nashville A-Team. Detroit's Motown Records house band was known as the Funk Brothers. Bring in the noise. Bring in the Funk Brothers. That's where the title comes from. But uh, Los Angeles had a group that wouldn't have an established name until years later. Like I said, a group of musicians, they played on tons of hit records. I mean, it's going through the list of these. I mean, I'm not going to be able to even list all the all the albums and records and songs that they played on. But you uh, can sing it. Dunka Shane. Dun- Were they on Shane? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I'll get into that. Some of them, uh, sometimes as a backing band, they, uh, they would play for the likes of a Dean Martin or Nancy Sinatra. But also as uh, ghost players, uh, filling in for band members and not getting the credit. Oh. And two of those very bands have been covered on this very podcast. Do tell. This was a thing, the retro podcast. Now, uh, in our season one episode, Mike Love versus the Beach Boys, I talked about Brian Wilson spent so much time in studio trying to get that perfect sound that would make a, a that would become the all time great song Good Vibrations and put it into pet sounds, uh, the album. Uh, well, the way Brian was able to get that sound was by having the wrecking crew in studio for months, tweaking little things here and there. Like he, he he knew that they were the group of people that he could get the most out of. So it wasn't even like the Beach Boys playing their own music. Like they might have played guitar, but like there were multiple guitars being played. But then season two, I talked about the band made for TV in our episode, the Monkees or Daydream Believers and members of that group, how they didn't play their instrument on recording. And that was a con- point of contention. Well, the recording, the music was played by members of the wrecking crew so they sang their songs but the wrecking crew played the instruments because the label knew that they they had a good musicians at least before they were putting them on a record like i said there's no definitive number how many musicians were actually in the wrecking crew but what is definitive is that they were a huge influence on some of the biggest songs of the 60s and 70s i'm just going to talk about their formation of their work and just some specific members and their achievements because like i said this thing, I mean, it, it would go on and on and on. And I, I'm sure I will say, I'm sure that there's going to be someone I, I, I didn't name, and I'm sorry, but there's, there's a lot of people. And then I can go into the whole vocal group. I mean, oh my God, that voc- there's a ton of vocal groups. My word. All right. So L.A. was the place people went to record. Booking studio time was hard to do because things were constantly being recorded and booked. So when you did get studio time, it was expensive. So to keep up with the pace of all the stuff, the musicians needed to know how what to do. They needed to be able to get sheet music and how to add to it because, you know, time is money. And when they didn't have space to record, like if we had it, we got to get in there and cut this cut this track. You had to know how to play all types of music, how to sight read. But most importantly, and at least for the musicians, to be ready to go get to the studio at a moment's notice because they were technically on call. So literally, you could be sitting around all day and be on call and then boom, oh, we need you. Someone can't make it. And then that could be your big break. I'd say studio musicians have probably been around as long as recorded music. They record on different records for different artists, largely going on and on, like I said. Uh, but they make a very solid living in doing so. Uh, they're part of a union, so there's overtime rules and everything. But then a new sound started to become popular. At that These session musicians that were around in the 30s and 40s were kind of like, what is that? It's a new sound that the youths loved. Uh, but something that the studio musicians just considered a fad, a passing fad. They said that rock and roll wasn't going anywhere, and they refused to play any of the recordings on the burgeoning genre. So these old school players were like, we're not going to play that. That's just a flash in the pan. But you know what? It ended up not being that. Since the old timers didn't want anything to do with it, that opened the door for a whole new set of artists to bring their own flair. And these musicians would, like I said, later be known as the Wrecking Crew. 91, when Hal Blaine, he's the... I saved I saved his story for last when Hal Blaine released his autobiography. Hal Blaine? 
Hal Blaine. <laughs> Al? Like Albert? No, Hal. Like ah, Halbert. there's an H. Hal. Not like Albert, but Albert. Halbert, yes. Pronounced H as in night. Yeah. <laughs> Hal Blaine referred to old school players as coat and tie or, or, uh, or, or navy coats. Uh, because, you know, they were like the guys that would come in and just, you know, play on the records. They were the, the business guys and stuff. He said that those fellas didn't like the new crew, that they would come in wearing T-shirts and jeans to recording what? sessions. Yeah. And, and that, thought. that And that those new, those new folks embracing that rock and roll sound was going to, quote, wreck the music industry. Oh. Hence the term wrecking crew wreck that's so cool i didn't know that they came in like a wrecking crew exactly thank you miley um now one of the first people to enlist the talents of this group of musicians was a man who's considered actually to be the first auteur of the recording industry and honestly the more and more i read about this man like how much he fucking did for popular music in the 60s and 70s is insane and then for how his story you know ends up um a man who would go on to have a hit after hit after hit a man who would then later be convicted of murder phil specter yep i'll tell you what i think i gotta do a a whole fucking episode on this phil guy because i mean it, 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 he is he is fascinating. The um, hair alone. So Phil Spector was known for his influential his influential wall of sound recording technique, making the music sound a lot fuller, doubling instruments so that sound would be unheard of in the music industry. Uh, 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 to create a sound uh, that he used and was able to create because of the Wrecking Crew. Now this is a clip from the uh, documentary. The wall of sound was the gold star echo chamber. Well, it was wall to wall musicians, first of all. Yeah. Most people use the four piece rhythm section. He had four guitars, or six or seven. There were four pianos always one upright bass, one fender bass. I mean, there was only one drums, usually. 15 people playing percussion instruments. In a very small room. Yeah. Not a small room, but an average room. And a huge. Echo chamber that Gold Star was famous for. Ceramic, that was the wall of sound. ceramic walls. That's Hal Blaine. The woman? <laughs> no, that's Carol Kay. The guy who was talking about the. There was usually about 15 cameras and there was about 17 pianos at one drummer. I'm assuming he wasn't allowed to sing on any of these. No, no, no. He kept the backbeat. Now, the thing also that they did was like I was talking about that they filled in music for the monkeys and they didn't just do it for the monkeys. Apparently back then there were multiple, multiple groups that we may may never hear about now, but boy, they were putting out records and the record label had zero trust in them apparently. This is about the fake bands. Hondells, uh, Marquettes, Routers. We'd cut the tracks and and the records and then they'd form a group to be that group. People were really not focused on the long, drawn-out album recording sessions. Four songs in three hours. It's only a certain group of guys can do that. A lot of the recording came out here. That's when you had an influx of a lot of New York musicians. That was in the uh, mid-60s when it started flowing out here. Then it became a flood around that time. So it wasn't just little bands and stuff. They also filled in for, I know you know the, you've heard of the band, uh, The Birds. They did the cover of Mr. Tambourine Man. Hey, Mr. Well, that cover of Mr. Tambourine Man, the initial cut, was all music by the Wrecking Crew. They didn't want, uh, I think it was capital didn't uh, trust the musicians in the birds to play their own instruments so they had the singer go in and play with the wrecking crew so that first wow. hit of the birds was all record uh was all the birds but uh, the birds actually had like a, their own band and they were oh, just yeah. like we don't think you're good enough to play on yeah, the record and, and on wow. the, in the band david crosby you know david crosby before he had his long hair and mustache like this is where he got his start so like these are great musicians in the and they're like leaders in the this quote-unquote new folk rock sound and they still needed the capital i think it was they wanted another band to play for them because it was essentially like we we don't trust these guys enough and then there was good vibrations because i'm kind of just going over some of the things that they had their hands in and then i'm going to go over members because i feel like that's the easiest as opposed to like all their stories getting to the place gotcha they put their names on huge songs this is the intro for the documentary and it kind of will give you just an idea of like all the different stuff they played she's somehow close 
So those were some of the big things that the Wrecking Crew did. I'm going to just go over uh, some of the people in the Wrecking Crew and uh, some of the stuff they did. And this first guy, I think Rob's really going to like some of the stuff he's done. Tommy Tedesco uh, was one of the guitar players for the Wrecking Crew. Uh, his son made the documentary. Um, he passed away in 97, so his son started making this in 96, clearing music and everything and having a Kickstarter to get the money to clear the music, he finally was able to release it in 2015 with everything. Tommy Tedesco was born in 1930. Uh, he'd go on to have a hugely successful career. Guitar Player Magazine said that he's the most recorded guitarist in history. Several hundreds of songs he played on became top 40 hits. Several hundreds of the songs he played on. So not talking about the ones that didn't become top 40 hits. Several hundred top 40 hits he played on. He recorded Beach Boys, Barbara Streisand, Elvis, Mamas and the Papas, Everly Brothers, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Cher, Nancy and Frank Sinatra. That guitar part on uh, Wayne Newton's Donka Shane? Uh, that's Tommy Tedesco. Tommy wasn't just recording for musical artists. No, he did television themes as well. Now, I'm sure you already saw it, Robbie, but uh, do you know this song? Close your eyes. I'm, I'm not looking. Oh, my God. TV themes. Let's see if I can guess them. He did Batman? He played the guitar on Batman. Get the fuck out. Here's the last one for uh, Tommy Tedesco. Green Acres. It's fucking Green Acres. Yes! So that's the thing. The Wrecking Crew wasn't just doing, like, top 40 pop music. They were doing albums. They were doing themes for TV. They were doing movies. I mean, these guys, like, if, if music needed to be recorded professionally, these were the people they went to. So good, so good. Now, he'd go on to play in film soundtracks like Jaws and The Godfather, and he was also the guitarist for the original Roxy cast of the Rocky Horror Show, oh, which cool. was produced, produced by Lou Adler, who he met when Lou Adler was a producer back using the Wrecking Crew in the 60s. So it's just like it's... Small world. Yeah, it's, yeah. but he passed He passed away in 1997 at 67 years old. But, I mean, he, he had a huge influence. So another guitarist is Bill Pittman. He was born in 1920. Uh, he did the normal come-up through uh, playing in jazz clubs, got a job playing for Peggy Lee, then made his way as a session player. Late 50s recorded with jazz drumming legend Buddy Rich, as well as the Velvet Fog himself, Mel Torme. In 1957, a mother named Bertha reached out to Bill to help her son Philip with the guitar, um, and it was decided that, you know, Philip probably didn't have what it took to play music. Then the next year, at uh, age 19, uh, well, Philip, also now known as Phil Spector, uh, sent Bill a copy of the demo he'd cut. Bill would end up playing the actual uh, on the actual recording of it, and that would be Phil Spector's first group, the Teddy Bears. And that song was actually a, a, a random hit, and uh, Bill then had employment with Phil for the foreseeable future. Not only uh, was he one piece of the wall of sound, but he would also then record for major acts. I'll be repeating some because they all like played on a lot of the same ones, but. Uh, uh, Frank Sinatra, Beach Boys, Mamas and the Papas, Jan and Dean, the Ronettes. Uh, Bill Pittman said that the rock music he was asked to play was unmemorable. Because uh, remember, rock music was like all kind of like still up and coming. But these guys were like, well, you know, we might as well. We need to get a paycheck. So it doesn't matter what we're playing as long as we're getting paid to play it. He said that he was genuinely surprised when some of the songs became wildly popular. Uh, producers said that they they jokingly claimed that if Pittman thought a record was terrible, then they probably had a hit on their hands. Uh, he passed away in 2022 at 102 years old. Wow. So this clip I'm going to show you, uh, play right now, is from the documentary. But uh, it starts with Bill, but it talks about how crazy busy uh, their schedules were as these sought-after recording artists. Gosh, there were so many things went on then. We were so busy. I mean, we would go from one to the other to the other. We used to call 
going from session to session, dovetailing. Jesus, when you leave the house at 7 o'clock in the morning and you're universal at 9 till noon, now you're at Capitol Records at 1, you just got time to get there, and then you got a jingle at 4, and then we were on a date with somebody at 8, and then the Beach Boys at midnight, and you do that five days a week. Jeez, man, you get burned out. At one time, we did an album in a day for Liberty Records. Five, six weeks in a row, we do an album a day. Six tunes in the morning and six tunes in the evening. When all the guys realized that we were doing most of the dates, said, we'll get scale or we'll get somebody else. And, of course, they didn't. So literally, like, they were going from session to session because they were in such demand. I mean, yeah. so, and they were making, you know, and they would get overtime. And, you know, so it's just like their days were booked and they were getting, you know, good money to do this. And they kept only getting more and more booked and busy. Two of the session musicians became, you know, had solo careers. There was a couple other ones, too, but big ones. Now, Glenn Campbell, Glenn Campbell started on the Wrecking Crew as one of the guitarists, the rhinestone cowboy himself. Born in 1936, he moved to L.A. in 1960 to become a session player. He eventually showed his guitar proficiency enough to gain a spot in the Wrecking Crew. Uh, played on records for Bobby Darin, Dean Martin, Nat King Cole, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Sammy Davis Jr., and Elvis. Glenn would go on to become a major star in the country music scene. He even had his own variety show, uh, the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour on CBS. Writers included Steve Martin and Rob Reiner. Now, Rob, could you go ahead and explain to our listeners what a variety show is? Absolutely. So in the 1960s, mostly, and a little bit into the early 70s, um, th the three major networks decided to take a specific performer, somebody like a Glenn Campbell. Thank you, Rob. For his first few solo albums, uh, he would use the Wrecking Crew as his backing band, but then he ended up releasing a total of 64 albums over a five-decade career, 45 million albums sold, one double platinum, four platinum, 12 gold, passed away in 2017 at 81 years old. Glenn Campbell, R.I.P. Happy New Year, Ray. Happy New Year, Rob. Any resolutions? Yeah, to be more generous. You? Same. I wonder if any of our listeners wish to be more generous, too. Well, listeners, if generosity is on your resolution list, head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And search for This Was a Thing and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we're doing. And if your resolution is to get rid of all your fatty foods and start a healthy diet... Please mail me all fatty foods, courtesy of the UPS store on Amsterdam Avenue. Stop N that. Mm. May this year bring you happiness, health, and Howard the Duck. Miss Cleo foresees a wonderful year ahead. The cards don't lie. Now we're going to get into who I consider the biggest badass of the whole fucking Wrecking Crew, Carol Kay, the one gal, the one lady in the Wrecking Crew, but man, I mean, she fucking, she can play bass. Born to musician parents in 1935, the first instrument Carol would ever play was the steel guitar. She made her way up playing in jazz clubs and even, ba even backing comedian Lenny Bruce. She'd eventually get session work playing guitar and played rhythm on Richie Valens's La Bamba. That's right. La Bamba. Uh, now, one day a bass player didn't show up to a session, so Carol stepped up. Then when the most sought-after L.A. bassist uh, Ray Pullman got a job as a musical director on the musical variety series Shindig, Carol stepped up. By the way, Pullman led the show's band, the Shindogs. Come on now. Yeah, come on. Now, luckily for Carol, uh, his exit from the recording scene made her the number one bassist in Los Angeles. And this is the only one I had the really palm mute to get the, the treble out. So you can hear that. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I did. Yeah. It said that Carol was part of 10,000 10, recording sessions during her career. Played from everyone from the Righteous Brothers to Simon and Garfunkel. She said that a lot of days she had multiple se uh, sessions, like they were saying. Now, her bass playing on the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations 
is said to have inspired Paul McCartney's sound on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. She'd go on to work with Quincy Jones quite frequently and uh, also released a series of books called How to Play Electric Bass. Now, there's a character in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel that was in- inspired by Carol Kay. Oh, wow. Carol Keene, played by Liza we- uh, Weil. Uh, Carol Kay would say the character is having nothing to do with me or my history. They took a few things out of my book and created a character that's not me at all. Now, uh, Carol never thought she'd be remembered, and just like many others in the group, thought that the pop song she played on wouldn't last longer than a decade. She was also surprised that people even still listen to the songs she played on, which is just so funny. These songs are like stand like standards i mean these are like go-to um some sessions would drag on for hours uh which meant good overtime money and carol she said at one point i was making more money than the president now uh carol is still alive and she's 88 years young so shout out carol k good for carol this is another bassist joe osborne he was born in 1937 joe osborne left louisiana at 20 and made his way out to la via Las Vegas. Now, Joe Osborne was one of the other go-to bassists in the LA recording scene. Got his break playing in Ricky Nelson's band. He became a uh, sought-after session musician after the group broke up. Recorded with Mamas and the Papas, Neil Diamond, The Association. Can be heard prominently on Fifth Dimension's version of Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In, uh, America's Ventura Highway, and Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Mm. He's most known for discovering uh, the sibling act, The Carpenters. So he's the one who got them famous, and uh, he played on all their albums as well. And then after he moved from L.A. to Nashville, he became part of the Nashville A-Team, so the session musicians in Nashville then. So just, you know, his proficiency was multi-city. Multi-city, folks. Now, um, going to go on to keyboard. I mean, there's just there's a bunch of keyboardists, but this one, uh, Larry Nectol was born in 1940. Uh, he got to be a part of the L.A. sessions by being part of Dwayne Eddy's band, The Rebels, and they had a hit. They had a hit band, a hit hit song covering the Peter Gunn theme. Now, he, he helped build the wall of sound with Phil Spector and just kept being in demand. He recorded with many of the previously noted artists, like I said, but also The Doors, Jerry Garcia, Billy Joel. He won a Grammy for his piano playing on Bridge Over Troubled Water in 1970, and then he joined the band Bread in 1971. Uh, Later in life, he worked with producer Rick Rubin and played on albums with Neil Diamond and the Dixie Chicks, and then he toured with the Dixie Chicks and Elvis Costello. Uh, He passed away in 2009 at the age of 69. (laughs) Now, the other big solo artist was keyboardist uh, Leon Russell, who was in Wrecking Crew. Now, we may not know Leon Russell, but he was a huge influence back in the day with his uh, solo stuff. Born in 1942, Leon made his way out to L.A., having some success playing music in his hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, He was influential in helping develop what was known as the, quote, Tulsa Sound, a mix of blues, rockabilly, country, jazz, and, of course, (laughs) swamp rock. We all know swamp rock. Love swamp rock. Let's sing some. Yeah, it was popular in uh, 1950s Louisiana and southeast Texas. That's really cool. So it's like a very localized genre okay oh that's the thing is like there were such localized genres that's what i'm finding out like they all had their like you know they they get a rock one of the new rock and roll albums and then they kind of put their own local flair into it right right right. so much yeah just so much was different things were created and like yeah it's Swamp Rock, there's like no like big hits, but it obviously was huge influence in some people. Now, Leon Russell gets to L.A. in 1958. He was 16 years old, so he'd already developed a sound in Tulsa at 16. So it was time for him to move out west. Uh, he found success shortly after session musician in uh, Wall of Sound, recorded with the likes of Dick Dale, Bob Dylan, Ike and Tina Turner, Bobby Boris Pickett, Freddie Boom Boom Cannon, Doris Day, Herb Albert, and the Tijuana Brass. Now, by 1970, the boy that was in the sessions with the short, black, slick back hair uh, was now rocking long hair, long beard, and sometimes a top hat. Rock that top hat. Oh, yeah. Now, he went on to musical direct and play keyboards for Joe Cocker's 1970 Mad Dogs and Englishman tour and the subsequent live album, which I will say is probably, my opinion, one of the best live albums ever. While that tour was going on, his first solo album, Leon Russell, was released and included the song A Song for You. Uh, The song's been covered by more than 200 artists and was named in the Grammy Hall of Fame. But we're alone now and I'm singing this song to you. I know. 
He has such an interesting, unique voice, too. He's like really oh, yeah. very distinct. Leon Russell received credit on 408 albums. Passed away in 2016 at 74 after a 60-year career. 60 Bless him. Year. Wow, that's insane. I'm going to get into drums and percussion. Now, first one I want to talk about is someone named Sonny Bono. Just want to start off the drum section with a member who brought that hot percussion sound of jingle bells and tambourine to a song. Yeah, uh, Sonny Bono, but he's, I didn't know this. He started as Phil Spector's assistant. He was essentially Phil Spector's gopher. Couldn't find two sexier guys working together than right? Phil Spector and Sonny Bono. Now, I'm going to talk about Earl Palmer. These are the two drummers that had the most impact, uh, Earl Palmer and then our our friend Hal Blaine. Um, now, Earl Palmer was born in 1924, started pl- uh, studying piano and percussion after World War II ended back in his hometown of New Orleans, worked his way up to being a drummer in New Orleans, recording sessions for singers like Little Richard, Fats Domino. On one of Fats Domino's songs, The Fat Man, his backbeat was the first recorded and is said to be the most important part of rock and roll music, which was just about to take off. So I'm going to play this little clip, but they say that this backbeat is the thing that made people go, oh, that's different. And this is like considered the quote unquote rock and roll back, like rock and roll sound beat. Earl Palmer took that backbeat to L.A. in 1957, made his way into the Wrecking Crew and Phil's Wall of Sound, along with a lot of the other aforementioned artists. He recorded with Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, Neil Young, Count Bassey, B.B. King. Wow. The Musicians Union has him playing on 450. They called So they called uh, sessions dates, like, oh, I have a date from four to eight, blah, blah, blah. Right. But the, the Musicians Union recorded in 1967 alone that he played on 450 dates. Oh, my God. Four, this there's, guy. Their schedules must have been insane. Oh, yeah. Like with that one guy was saying, like, you know, you wake up at seven, you get to one place, then you finish that, you have enough time to get to another one, then you get to that, then you have enough time to do a jingle at one place, and then you have to get to, you know, Brian Williams at midnight. I mean, it's just like, and, you know, and, and that's the thing is, as artists, we know that you, know, you you get this extra drive when you're around other creative people. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 insane. Like, when you are around creative people, you just get it. So if you're in a room with a bunch of, like, genius musicians who love what you're doing, I mean, like, I could see it be exhausting, but, man, at least you're having fun doing what you're doing. Like, uh, most times you'd think. Now, um, he didn't keep track of the records he played on, and when he was asked by E Street Band drummer Max Weinberg what he'd played on, he said... Quote, don't ask me which ones I played on. I should have done like Hal Blaine. Hal used to get gold records for all the things he played on. I never did that, you know. And I just wanted to have that lead in for our main man, Mr. Hal Blaine, the last member of the wrecking crew (laughs) that I will cover. I saved Hal Blaine for last because he seems to be the most eccentric, saw probably the most amount of success besides the ones that went solo, and also has quite a story of like, you know, you know, this career is uh, a lot of fun. So back in, uh, he was born in 1929, starts playing drums at eight, moves to California from Connecticut at 14, 20 to 23, takes drum lessons from Roy Knapp, who was the same drum teacher that taught Gene Krupa. So Gene Krupa was another like huge drummer. So the guy already had a great teacher, uh, learned how to sight read music by playing drums in strip clubs in Chicago's, which... I didn't realize, and they showed a little clip in the movie. So strippers, I guess, would go up, and they would hand the band their sheet music, so the band wouldn't know what the sheet music is, so they just have to, so instead of going like, all right, let's do, um, that girl is poison, they're gonna do that song, the DJ's gonna play it, it's like, nope, okay, now make sure you keep up with the pace there, because mama's gotta take her clothes off. He toured his way into session work, and in 1963, forever left his mark on music with the opening of the Ronettes' Be My Baby. Oh, geez, and yeah. so this this intro is literally, like, everyone knows this. Oh, yeah. So good. So that drum, actually, that that opening was a mistake. He was supposed to hit the snare on the t- and the two and the four, but he accidentally only hit it on the four. And uh, Phil Spector liked it enough to leave it in. So that intro, which is like ingrained in our brains, was a mistake. It was an oops, oopsie daisy. 
just to kind of show you the success this man was having, between 66 and 71, he played on six consecutive Grammy Record of the Year winners. So he like he was the drummer. So in order, Herb Albert and Tijuana Brass, uh, Taste of Honey, Frank Sinatra, Strangers in the Night, The Fifth Dimension, Up, Up and Away, Simon and Garfunkel, Mrs. Robinson, Fifth Dimension, Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In, and then Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. So six years in a row, he won a Grammy for playing on the best record of the, you know, like that's crazy. Uh, played on 150 top 10 singles, uh, including 39 that went to number one on the billboard. So 39 number one hits he played on. That's a lot of gold records to put up, like Earl Palmer was saying. Hal Blaine would get the records. Now, he claims to have been a part of 35,000 recording sessions and played on 6,000 singles. And like I said, he says he came up with the phrase, the name, the wrecking crew. Now this is a clip from the documentary where Hal kind of explains how things can really just go south for you fast. In my particular case, I bought an incredible mansion in Hollywood. I had a magnificent yacht. I had a gorgeous Rolls Royce. But out of nowhere, I had a wife who all of a sudden declared I want a divorce. What? What are you talking about? I just went for a sandwich and it, it's like impossible to believe. And in order for her to get paid off, you sell everything you own. I had 170-something gold records, had to sell them all. The house was sold for a third of what it was worth. I had to let the yacht go. The yacht was repossessed. Never had anything repossessed in my life. It's just a shame to get wiped out that seriously. I had been working with John Denver almost five grand a week for almost 10 years. And all of a sudden that job ended. Terrible, terrible thing to have to go through. I mean, it's, I was working in Scottsdale, Arizona and I was a security guard, plain and simple. So, like, I just wanted to show that because it's one of those things that's like you hear about big name artists, you know, having divorce settlements and stuff. But like even the session players who have this good, you know what I mean? Like they they have bad, you know, shit happen in their careers. I don't know. It just just seeing that was like, damn. But uh, he passed away in 2019 at the age of 90. Both him and Earl Palmer were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, and they were some of the first session musicians inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And those two drummers, I mean, had a huge impact on music. Now, uh, when we get back from the break, I'm going to talk about, you know, what really kind of was the thing that made the things that made session musicians fall out or like like the wrecking crew, like they didn't they're not as prominent today as they were back in the 60s. And that's after the break. This was a thing, this was a thing And now, this is a sketch You may know him from his drumming in the WC, or maybe even as part of the Scottsdale, Arizona Security Force. But Hal Blaine is back, and he's going to teach you drums. And he still hasn't been able to get a new drum kit, so he teaches by word. If Carol Kay can make money off of teaching, then so can Hal Blaine. I'm Hal Blaine, and I can keep a beat. And I can teach you how to keep a beat. And then you can help me beat the IRS. That's right. When others would be mortified of admitting to being part of an obvious cash grab, Hal Blaine doesn't think that way. I need the cash. Hal Blaine is a legend. The man worked from everyone from Sonny to Cher. He owes it to the world to share his gift, just like he owes almost $47,000 in back taxes. Nobody ever said that sovereign citizenship was bupkis. That lesson in sovereign citizenships in turn taught Hal a great lesson. And now he's going to teach you a lesson, a drum lesson. Hear and learn some of Hal's most known techniques. And remember, the man doesn't have a drum set, so this isn't your average drum lesson. Left stick, hi-hat. Right stick snare, and then you hit that, you just uh, go back and forth, and then you want to hit the uh, bass drum with your foot. Um, I don't know, uh, just, you know, you, you have it or you don't. Now, how much did you say Carol made when she did this? Paradiddle, paradiddle, paradiddle. And then you take your stick and you go symbol, 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 symbol. But you want to go faster than that, but I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't speak that quick anymore. 
I mean, is anyone else getting hungry? You guys hungry? You want to just go ba-boom, boom, boom. Well, if we're talking legs, then uh, I'd say Tina Turner. Yeah, hands down. Very close second, though. Ike Turner. Yeah. Paradiddle, paradiddle, paradiddle. You'll get it. And don't worry, we even have a customer testimonial talking all about this legend of the ones and the twos. And according to Hal, they're the closest of friends. Derek from AutoZone. Yeah, my name is Derek. I met Mr. Blaine when he came in asking if we sold car toilet paper. I'll never forget that in my life. I mean, he said car toilet paper. Um, I, I told him I didn't know what it was, and he got upset, and, and he said, you, know, you hear that song playing? I played with the Beach Boys. It was Co- Kokomo. Kokomo was playing in the store, and he didn't play on Kokomo, so he got mad. He grabbed three of the free area maps, and he left. He came back in yesterday to see if the car toilet paper ever came in, but that's the last time I saw him. Hal Blaine is a legend in the business of music and even has his GIA Diamond Certification License. That's information that you didn't need to know, but since Hal wouldn't stop talking about it, we decided you should know about it too. When you get your first big check from doing music stuff, people are going to come out of the woodworks and, you know, okay, can I borrow money? Hey, can I, can, can you invest in this? Could you put it in the property? No, don't listen to any of them. Just listen to me. I was very successful in the music industry. Invest in diamonds. What started as an idea for a drum lesson tape soon morphed into a lesson in the music industry and a deep dive into diamond investment. I bet Carol didn't talk about diamonds on, did she? Hal Blaine's Drum Rolls and Diamonds, Lessons in Life. What really killed the music industry is when they stopped manufacturing quaaludes. Thank you. This was a sketch. They're still around session players, but they don't like they never really went anywhere. But in the 70s, that brought along a lot of, quote unquote, singer songwriters like James Taylor, Carol King. Um, So they were playing a lot of their music. And then bands started getting wise, like started wising up going. Well, no, in our contracts, we're going to put that we're playing music. Like, we're going to play the instruments. Like, we're not going to have other people play them, you know, so there wasn't going to be another bird situation. But also technology getting better and making looping a lot easier as opposed to, like, having the same players play it over and over again. And then, like, with Hal Blaine and, like, drum machines, you know, like... Those became huge in like the 70s and 80s and synthesizers and stuff. So they there wasn't really need for actual musicians when you just had a drum machine. And so it's just music becoming bigger and, you know, technology getting more and more technological. I can't think of the word. Uh, it, it really just kind of put an end to this. But I mean, goddamn, about, um, about a decade of them playing music, the Wrecking Crew. I mean, it's just so much music and it was just like i kept reading about the wrecking crew and different things going i just need to see what they're about and i mean it's just insane to see and then you see the acts they played for and you're like well obviously they must be the best of the best if these people are hiring them so yeah that's the wrecking crew right just one one quick question really quickly so it's drums uh what keyboard? Well, and they had they had drums, keyboard, guitar, bass, but then they also they had horns as well. I mean, here some yeah some of the other names I didn't mention were Barney Kessel, Plas Johnson, Al Casey, James Burton would go on to be Elvis's guitarist back in the seventies. If you know this, I'm so sorry. In like the late sixties, early seventies, like woodwinds started to get used a lot in in oh, a lot yeah, of the yeah. recording. Do you know who might have played skin flute? Oh boy, uh, I think no. Well, Liberace was mainly piano. I think it was Scott Thompson. Thank you. There was Jim Keitner, Bob, a good name, Bob Glob. Bob Glob. Yeah, Bob Glob. But like, it's just there's so many people that if I were to try and just sit down and talk about all their careers, I mean, it's just insane. It's just the things these guys did and gal, one gal. Yeah. When I would listen to the, when I would be like that song too. Oh my God. that And a lot of these songs I hadn't heard in so long. And then with like the frame of reference of wall of sound and stuff, like when you listen to, uh, you've lost that love and feeling like you hear that. And I guess Phil, the Phil Spector, what he what he says was the greatest usage of it. Uh, mountain river, deep mountain high, uh, river, deep mountain high. It wasn't even really a hit back in the day. So what he considered his most best usage of it wasn't even used as 
wall of sound. Yeah. But like I I I re- like I feel like I just keep talking. I, I think I got to do a whole episode on Phil Spector because that dude. I mean, the fucking stuff that he did. He certainly sounds like a fascinating character. I was going to say sort of what you were talking about at the end, Ray, with technology. It did strike me that one of the things Phil Spector seemed to do was he's like, let's put more, right? He's like more people, oh, yeah. more instruments. Oh, yeah. And that one of the things that really is a huge shift nowadays is that you actually need fewer and fewer people to get the more stuff, right? It's the more su- like exactly. you look at somebody like a Billie Eilish who entire like basically self-produces things, right? Where she is all the instruments and all the things, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that's a really I can imagine that that's a hard transition for studio musicians or for people who are used to this sort of in-person, like you you add sound by adding people, whereas now you add sound by adding experience with technology and with understanding sampling. And like this, whole, like I, I wonder, I'm curious what these people would think of sampling. Like, would they think it's just, would they be, would it be anathema to them? Because that's sort of what it sounds like. It's like they treasure music that they play so much that the idea of being like well we'll just take a little cut of this song and repeat it and then use that it's like i wonder what they would think of that well it's funny because i guess it's, it's similar but like tommy tedesco he w- it would go on and do like uh seminars and stuff and he was talking about how like yeah i was doing uh, a thing and they need a, a song that they were in mexico so i gave him a little bit of this and then they were doing a song and they were in belize so i gave him a little bit and it was the same song but just a little bit different <laughs> you know what i mean so it's essentially like the cheating that was probably done because no one like could look up the the stuff that easily <laughs> was i'm sure it was a lot easier to cheat but yeah that's my uh the wrecking crew they wrecked it they wrecked it we should wait we should call them what was it the click was what they were most known as the click does not strike me as as i don't know as as like very uh doesn't have quite the same ring to it yeah no 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 like the other ones like they sound like they would be like secret agencies or like a group of like badass people like the a team the wrecking crew oh boy the clicks coming in the yeah the click sounds like the like the popular crowd at school that's just gonna like make fun of you for your weird fashion choices. I feel like that's what they like musicians would be like. That would how they'd be condescending to someone that would use a click track when they were recording. Like, oh, oh the clicks coming in, <laughs> loser! It sounds like they played quite a lot of music on that Ray. And you know what we should all play? Oh, that is a great segue. I think we should play a game. This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. So this game is called What Came First? Now, you know, the Wrecking Crew was uh, full of musicians. Now, musicians are people that play music, and a way to play music is on instruments. And so I was curious, you know, when some instruments were invented, and I'm going to ask you guys, what came first? Oh, shit. Okay. Okay. This is going to be hard. And then it's just going to be you guys just shout out what you think. Okay. 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 What came first? Would it be the harp or the flute? The flute. Flute. Ah, oh, goddammit. Ah, uh, correct. Flute. Flute came first. 9600 BCE, but the modern flute as we know it came around in 1810. So, out of curiosity, what do you think came first? The trombone or the trumpet? Trumpet. Very good, Daniel. Trumpet came in 1400 around then. Mid-14th century was a trombone. Said to have been friend, uh, invented middle of 15th century. Uh, used to be called a sacabute or the sackbutt, which I wish they would have kept that name, the sackbutt. Mm. Okay, next question. What came first? The electric organ or the electric bass? Organ. Electric bass. It's going to be organ. Very good, Daniel. Out of Ontario, patented the world's first electric organ in 1928, but the electric bass came seven years later. American inventor Paul Tutmark uh, was known as the bass fiddle and was produced and sold by Audiovox in 1935. All right, which came first, the harpsichord or the violin? Violin. Uh, I would have said violin too, but go, Rob. Very good. Actually, the violin and the cello were invented the same year by the same man in, in northern Italy, Andrea Amati. And the harpsichord, get ready for this name, was cre- uh, created in 1521 by an Italian inventor, Hieronymus Bononinus. It's spelled B-O-N-O-N-I-E-N-S-I-S. That's his last name. Hmm. Okay. So how many, how many is that? So far, Rob has two. I have two. We're tied up. Let's make this the last one. Last one. Tiebreaker. All right. And now, the tiebreaker. This is going to be a really, 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 really good one, because what came first? Would it be the clarinet or 
what like the first version of what we now know as the piano. The piano. Yeah, I actually would have said clarinet, so we were on different sides. Daniel, you win this oh. game. The clarinet was invented in Germany 10 years before the oh, piano whoa. in 1700. Oh, 1690 for the clarinet and 1700 for the for what we know as the piano. There was uh, the harpsichord came before the piano and stuff and uh 1690 uh Johann C- uh, Christopher Denner, a German instrument maker from Nuremberg, he added a barrel and two keys to the Schallermühle and he had uh, and, and uh, musicians had different registers. So that was what came first. Now you won't, uh if you guys need games done by Ray Hebel, he's happy to do so. Just go ahead and let him know because he is the game master general. I wasn't sure about that one. I think that my thought process with the reed instruments, you know, like that we've been like blowing on like through grass and things like that, so that like reeds might have come before. But honestly, that wouldn't have surprised me if piano came first, because like I don't know, it would make sense that that sort of a basic percussion instrument would be around. So it's funny when you just said that, my brain goes to automatically what I call reed. I call my eyes reed instruments. Oh, oh, because yeah. Have you ever like written that on like a resume? Plays reed instruments, and they're like, "Did you misspell this?" And you're like, "No, no, no." That's a great idea. Casting director would totally remember that. I need to go through my Rolodex. Hey everyone, thanks for walking down memory lane with us. Ray, if they want to continue their stroll with us on This Was a Thing, the Retro Podcast, where can they find us? Well, if you want to continue your stroll, go ahead and grab your walking shoes because you can go to www.thiswasathing.com. You could see all of our old episodes and we even have one of those things where you can listen to the latest episode in the website. I know, we are a very tech-heavy podcast. Or you could go check out This Was A Thing Pod on Instagram. Yeah, the gram. We do it for the gram, but we really do it for the listeners. And also, if you wanted to check out Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, look up This Was A Thing. We have all the old episodes. We have extra episodes. We have longer episodes. And uh, to tell you more, can we cut, 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 cut? Well, sure thing, Ray. If during your little stroll you uh, decide that you're not going to go down the Patreon path, that's okay. We understand. But perhaps you'd be willing to give Apple Podcasts a try. Yes, that's right. Apple Podcasts, where we know a lot of you happen to be listeners. And on Apple Podcasts, we also offer a way of supporting the show through a membership called And Another Thing, where you get access to more things like bonus episodes, extra content, and even extended ad-free versions of our regular episodes. So you could also support us there if you are so inclined. But also... Also, if supporting us in that way is not something you're able to do, that's completely fine. Thank you just for listening. We really appreciate it. If you might be able to leave us a rating or a review on whatever podcast platform you listen, that would mean a lot to us. And maybe you could even just recommend an episode to a friend. Maybe you like this one. Maybe you were like, this one sucked. But last week's was great. So if you're enjoying even just a couple of the things you're hearing, we would love it if you could spread the love and let people know about the show as well. With all that said, thank you to everyone just for listening. Until next week.